The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father God, I simply am not in and of myself capable of doing what needs to be done now. Father, if you don't show up, if you don't work by your spirit, not a single word that comes from my lips will amount to anything. In the ears of these people across from me, unless you do your work, it will be stopped up. And again, it will amount to nothing. And so we need you now. God, because there is truth and there is life, there is hope, there is assurance, there is joy in these words. So we're asking you, Father, by your spirit to take this word and do a miracle now. We ask it for your son's sake. It's in his name we pray. So from time to time, people will let me know that they're bringing a, a visitor on Sunday morning. They'll say, I've got a cousin from out of town, or I've got a coworker, a friend, and I've invited them to come and, and visit our church. And I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that my immediate impulse was at something like, well, have you warned them about us? Because when most people think of church, what they think of is a 20-minute TED Talk. Something light and jokey and flippant. Something entertaining. They, they, they just want some spiritual talk, a couple of Bible verses sprinkled in, then give me some do's, give me some you oughtas, and then send me on my way telling me I'm a good boy. And as I told you last week, this is what passes for encouragement in so many churches. And because people have become so accustomed to sitting under this kind of teaching, when they get something real and weighty and material, it knocks them back on their heels and they don't know what to do with it. And so, so often I want to look at people and say, but are you sure you want to set your friend up for this? Shouldn't you warn them first? That we find joy in the deep things of God. We wrestle with his word because we believe that there is the only satisfaction and joy and hope that will last through suffering and pain and sorrow. Have you, have you warned them that we believe all the words that the Bible said? Have you warned them that we actually believe the word predestination means something? But I don't say any of that. I just let them show up and do with it what they will. But I was, I was blessed this week. I got an email from a woman. I don't know. She may be here this morning. A woman that was curious about our church. And she had a list of questions. If I remember correctly, it was 28 questions she had, many of them, with regards to how we handle God's word. And I, and I showed the, the list of questions to my wife, and she said, I think you finally met your match. 
Someone who takes this as seriously as you do. Someone who seems to hate flippant and light and jokey things. And as I was looking through that list of questions and thinking about the honest answers to those questions, it just made my appreciation for you people grow. That I can stand up on a Sunday morning and I know that I can deliver to you the deep doctrines of Scripture. Things that make your head hurt. Things that stretch you well beyond the limit of your understanding. And things, quite frankly, that put you at odds with the rest of the world. Not just the non-believing world, but many who call themselves Christian. We're strange. We're easy to dislike. And yet I've had enough conversations with enough of you to know that you wouldn't change it for all the money in all the world. That's my love letter to you. But I say that as a way of preparation for what we set out to do this morning. As we have walked through, what is this now, week 47, week 48, and Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we've dealt with some heavy things and some some things that will really come across as, a, as an assault on humanity and our, our natural state. And I kept telling you, we're going to get to some good news. We're going to get to some good news. And we come now to the good news. But the good news will not be truly good. It won't taste as sweet as it should. It won't drive your worship to the heights that it should go unless you hold in the background the darkness and the depravity and the desperation of man. Apart from this good news. As we come together here to verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2 in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. What he's talking to us about here is the very essence of Christianity. So I ask you to stand to your feet please one more time. We read Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. This is the inerrant and infallible, sufficient, authoritative Holy Word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So as I said, coming here to verse 5 and 6 of this second chapter is, Paul is, is really condensing for us the very essence of Christianity. He's in the middle of these profound and deep doctrines, and then he... he he breaks off into this parenthetical outburst of joy as he says here, by grace you have been saved. 
Now he's going to repeat that statement again when we get to verse 8. And that's where we're going to really wrestle with what each one of those words mean. But he wants to make clear right here. He, he can't help but point it out. In the middle of all these things, he says, let me tell you what you're looking at. Let me tell you what I'm showing you. This is not only the essence and the purest form of grace your eyes will ever behold, but this is the heart of salvation. This is the way in which the God of the universe saves. Now, as I told you last week, pointing your eyes to John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the reason that this matters, like, look, why, is it, why does it matter if I know the way I've been saved? Isn't it enough that I've trusted in Christ Jesus and repented of my sin? I've got my golden ticket to heaven. Why does it matter if I know the inner workings of this thing? Well, number one, because God has chosen to reveal it. He's deemed it important enough to sweep us up into the height of heaven and, and, and show us how he's been working. But in addition to this, if you think about that man called Christian, he was carrying the burden on his back, the, the shame and the confusion and the lack of assurance from his sin, even though he had already walked through that narrow gate. He had already come to Christ Jesus, and yet he continued to walk with his eyes towards the ground and a burden on his back until he came to the cross and saw it for what it was. It was then that the burden rolled from his back and went down into the sepulcher. It's because I look around at Christianity and at the Christian world and I find so many who have been redeemed and forgiven and yet their lives lack any real sense of joy, any hope of assurance. They walk around with their eyes down low because they don't know what has been done for them. They don't know the power of God that was exercised in their salvation. They walk around constantly afraid that this is a thing they might lose because they don't know from whence it comes. They don't know the grounding of their own salvation. And so that's what Paul is doing for us. He's taking us to the cross, not as a means of saving us. He's speaking to believers. He's writing to the saints. This isn't an evangelistic text. This is him saying, may that burden roll off your back as you recognize all that God has done to save you. He began, of course, by talking about the means by which God has worked. The immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You remember back in chapter 1 when we came to this verse, and I told you we might sum it up in layman's terms as God's working in the power of the power of his power. It was all the power of God exercised towards you. That's what it took to make you a Christian. The immeasurable greatness of God's power. I reminded you back then that it's no less a miracle when God leads an eight-year-old little girl that has never spent a day of her life outside the church to Christ Jesus. That is no less a miracle than when he leads the hardened criminal to Christ. I pray that you've not lost your sense of awe and wonder at that reality. That every day you wake up and you look at yourself in the mirror. Every day that you continue on in the faith. Every day that you find your heart drawn to Christ Jesus in repentance and trust, I pray that you don't lose your sense in awe and wonder at the reality that you are a miracle. It took the power of God to make a Christian. Paul didn't just stop there, though. He moved beyond that to tell us why has God exercised his power towards us of all people? 
Of all people in all of the earth, why has God exercised this power towards us? And he says it right here in chapter 2. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. It's grounded in God's nature. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. As he said to the people of Israel, I've loved you because I love you. This was never a thing that was bound up in you. This was a never, never a thing that you could merit, that you could earn, that you could manufacture. This was a thing that has always been grounded in the nature of God. It has always come forth from the promises of God. And therefore, it's a thing that cannot be lost. You didn't earn his mercy. You didn't earn his love. You didn't earn your salvation. And therefore, it's not a thing that you can lose. But now this morning, we're ready to consider finally, what has he actually done? So when we come to verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Even when you were dead in your trespasses. He says nothing's changed. That's what he's saying here. You know all the really bad stuff that we studied in verse 1 through 3? You know all the things that we were lamenting about the state of natural man apart from Christ? All of that bad stuff, that was still true at this moment. You hadn't taken steps towards God. You hadn't availed yourself to God. You hadn't shaken out of your spiritual deadness. You were still dead. It was even at that moment that God made us alive together with Christ. See, the world's got this so completely backwards. They've got this picture in their mind that what man does is he comes to Christ first. He figures out Christ first. He places his heart in the hands of Christ first, and then God raises him from the dead. Paul won't let you go there. He says it was at that very moment when you were still dead and helpless and wicked that the infinite power of God, directed by the love of God, called you to life. So the question is, what does it mean when he says here that he made us alive? Surely it means the opposite of everything that death entailed. What does it mean? I, I Googled it. I couldn't figure out how to Google it. What, what words do I type into the Google to find the answer to this? But what does it mean to be dead? That, you get all kind of weird answers. I'm just trying to like, what's the clinical definition of deadness? It's a lack of respiration. It's a lack of a heartbeat. It's a lack of brain waves. That's what it means to be dead. So what does it mean to be alive? What's the opposite of these things? It means your heart's beating. It means that your chest is moving as you take air in. It means that your pupils dilate when they put the little flashlight in there. That's what it means to be alive. Well, surely it's the same with regards to spiritual life. You remember that we referred back to Jesus' words in the upper room on the night which he was betrayed in John 17, 3. He says that this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That all throughout the Bible, spiritual life equals knowing and walking with and pleasing God. Therefore, spiritual death, we determined, was to be alienated from God. That's what Colossians 1.21 says. To be dead is to be alienated from God. Or Ephesians 2.12, we will come to that five years from now. It says, having no hope and without God in the world. Spiritual life is knowing God. Spiritual death is not knowing God. Being alienated and cut off from God. But it's not just a matter of position. It's not just a matter of relation. It says something about us as well. 
This deadness, just as with physical deadness, it speaks to an insensitivity or an unresponsiveness, an inability to respond to the things of God. Now, as we talked about back in those first three verses, this can be very confusing because these kind of dead men, they're very, very active. They're following the course of this world after the prince of the power of the air, chasing after the desires of their mind and their, and their body. This is an active deadness. These are the walking dead. But then in very large part, the death that we see in these men, it has taken root in their minds. Here's a fancy word for you, the noetic effects of sin. Noetic just means that which has to do with the mind or the intellect. And all throughout Scripture, we see God telling us that, look, your sin has twisted your mind. It has changed your thoughts. It has darkened your understanding. We see that in 1 Corinthians 2.14, that the natural person, this is the spiritually dead person. The person as he is born, man as he is born in the flesh, in Adam, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Ephesians 4.17 says that in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Just as with so much else, somehow even the Christian mind can come to these words and turn them completely upside down. What is Paul saying here? Why are their minds darkened? Why is there ignorance in them? It's because of their hardened hearts. So often we look at the world around us and we think all they need is new information. If we could just get this information into their hands, if we could just teach them some new thoughts, if we could just train them in some new practices, then everything will work itself out. Beloved, God says it's the opposite. The problem is the heart. It's your love of sin it's your love for the things that are not of God. That's what leads to your darkened understanding. That's what leads to foolishness. When men say that sin makes you stupid, this is what they mean. It affects your mind and it, it, it weaves its way in there so that you're so darkened you can't understand the things of God. So that for the natural man, the man who is dead the way that Paul speaks in this way about dead men, as I stand here and I unfold for you the words of Scripture, you hear nothing but Charlie Brown's teacher. Oh, you may understand the actual words, but they will be foolishness to you. Because your heart loves the darkness more than it loves the light. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that we have help in this darkness. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That the light of God's glory has come in the face of his son, Jesus Christ, the light of life, that it is here. But our eyes are darkened and our minds are dulled and our understanding is limited. And it's all because of our love of sin. It's all because of our hardened hearts. It's all because of our spiritual deadness. This is why Jesus can look at his disciples there after much difficult teaching. He can, he can look at the people around him who don't understand what he's talking about. When he speaks of freedom and light and life. These men who believe themselves to be free already. He says to them in John 8, 34, he who practices sin is a slave to sin. You see, we've got this twisted idea that sins are just things that we do. 
That sins are just a bunch of times when we break the rules of God. But that's not the way that Scripture talks about sin. Scripture talks about sin as a power that reigns. It's a ruling principle in the lives of men. It's a keep, thing that keeps them enslaved and darkened and blind and unable to respond to the things of God. But to make matters even more convoluted, it's a willing slavery. We're slaves previous to Christ Jesus. We were slaves who loved our slavery. We were men who lived in darkness but loved that darkness. That's again exactly what Jesus says. John 3.19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That they cling to their darkness as if it were life. They cling to death as if it were light. They love death and darkness because the enemy has convinced them that it is life and it is freedom. So that when the light of the world comes, when the promise of salvation comes, they treat it as if it were death. They treat it as if it were foolishness. They can't understand the words that are coming at them. They can't trust in the promises that God has delivered them. And that's perhaps the greatest problem. It's not just that our minds are lacking in understanding or that our eyes are darkened. It's not just that we can't trust the light or come to the light. It's that this doesn't just lead us to a disinterest in the things of God, but a distrust and a hatred. Romans 8, 6 says it to set the mind on the flesh. Again, that's just the worldly mind. The way every single one of us were born into this world, that to set the mind on the flesh is death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It enmity with God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Man, as he is born into this world, every single person you have ever met previous to Christ was completely incapable, unable to please God, to know God, to trust in the promises of God because they hated God. We have wrestled with this, what we spend four weeks wrestling with this. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons or read the transcripts from those sermons as we talked about how confusing this can be to the carnal mind because they don't find themselves to be an enemy with God. They think that they love God, many of them. But what you'll find is they love a God of their own making or they love the treasures that they believe they can get from God. But what you'll find is that as the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the light of the glory of God in the face of his son, Jesus Christ, as it comes into this world, God offers, and as God offers salvation to them. You remember the call that I extended to you at the end of our sermon on being children of wrath by nature. I, I called out to you, those of you that are perhaps not yet believers in this room, I called out to you, why must you die? Why must you die? Why would you not fly to Christ? Why would you not hide yourself in Christ? Well, the answer is clear for the natural mind, the fleshly mind, the carnal mind, because they see in Christ death. They can't trust his promises. They can't believe that it's going to come true. They're at enmity with God. Now, this is the picture of natural man. This is the picture of while we were yet still sinners. This is the picture of even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. These are the people that he is speaking about here. This is where you were when God came and made you alive. 
And these are all the things that God had to overcome if he was going to make you alive. A moral inability to trust in him. An inability. It's not a lack of faculties. You have eyes that work. You have a brain that works. You have a body that works. You believe in all sorts of things, just not him. It's a moral inability because man can't love the thing that he hates. We've watched as men have tried to serve and honor God in their flesh and it doesn't work. It's a grotesque thing to God and it's a sad thing to man. So many men that they walk around and they believe that the whole of the Christian life is just learning to eat your vegetables while you hold your nose and gag them down. They believe that Christianity is about learning to do things that you hate and pretend to love them because everybody else pretends to love them. So if God was going to make man alive, if God was going to bring man to a place where he could turn and trust in Christ and receive the promise of the gospel, he's got to change his affections. He's got to change his desires. He's got to overcome this moral inability within man to trust in the promises of God. Again, I say this is a matter of the mind and the heart and and the will. God must change our disposition towards him. All of this, what must be done if God's going to make us alive. And Paul says right here in verse 5 that that's exactly what he's done. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. You'll remember that Paul ties this to the resurrection of Jesus Christ back in chapter 1 when he says that this power that he works towards us it's the same power by which he raised Christ Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places he says you want to see a picture of this spiritual life you want to see a picture of this spiritual resurrection look to the physical resurrection of my son Jesus Christ that's what he's talking about here when he says he made us alive it's a spiritual resurrection if you want to use a theological term it's regeneration if you want to use a churchy term this is called being born again This is the path that every Christian must walk. You will hear people say things like, I'm a born-again Christian. I'm a born-again Christian. There's no such thing as a not-born-again Christian. You're either born again or you're not a Christian. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Excuse me, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He's saying that in Christ Jesus, all that wrath that was stored up for these who are by nature children of wrath, all that wrath that was stored up for them has been settled once and for all in Christ Jesus. The record of their debt, the the amassing pile of sin debt, the wrath that God had stored up for us for all eternity, it was nailed to the cross behind the hand of his son, Christ Jesus, never to be seen ever again. That everything that God the Father had planned, all that we talked about in God's predestining and planning and purposing in that first chapter of Ephesians, all that he had planned in eternity past, the son accomplished 2,000 years ago. Redemption accomplished. In Christ Jesus 2,000 years ago. But paying for that debt is not yet enough. Something else has to happen. Because again, I tell you, we are blinded and we are hardened and we are darkened and we are dead. And we are unable to trust in those promises. You could hold up Christ Jesus as Lord. 
You could promise to the world that he has died on the cross to pay for the sins of man, and man will never in faith receive that promise unless something else happens. That redemption has to be applied, and this is that very first step is that which God has planned in eternity past, which Christ has accomplished 2,000 years ago, is applied to us in this lifetime. That's the picture of being born again, of being regenerated. And this is the heart of Christianity. Again, I tell you, it's the essence of salvation, that God makes men come to life. That God creates life where there was death. A new disposition, a new principle, Law, the spirit of life at work within the hearts of men who were once dead. Beloved, this is the only way of salvation. Not new plans, not new purposes, not new practices, not new logic, not new understanding. Life. Dead men coming to life. That's the whole picture of salvation. And he unfolds it for us right here. This isn't just the teaching of the Apostle Paul. You see, we have this idea that Paul's understanding of the gospel or Paul's understanding of salvation, it's somehow unique to Paul. He learned from Christ. And this is the same way that Jesus talks about salvation. I want you to think about John 3, everybody's favorite chapter in the Bible, it seems. Everybody goes straight to John 3, 16, forgetting that John 3, 1 through 8 comes first. Now, we can't separate the two. We'll talk next week about what we must do with John 3, 16. But you remember what happened. A Pharisee called Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He was impressed with the miracles and the works that he had seen Jesus do. And he tells him, clearly you're a man that has come from God. Clearly you're a teacher of God. And that's high praise from a Pharisee like Nicodemus. Clearly you're a teacher that has come from God. No man could do these things unless it were so. Now you would expect Jesus to just receive this praise, but that was never Jesus' way. Instead, he takes the man deeper and he shows him his lack. He shows him his need. In John 3, 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He says you can't see because you're blind. You can't see it because you're dead. You can't see it because your mind is darkened by your hardened heart. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I want you to, again, think about who this is. This is a nice, religious, pious man. This is a man who knew his Bible better than any of us. This is a man who had not written off Jesus' miracles, as the other Pharisees did, as having been done by the power of Beelzebul. He comes in great humility before Jesus. And Jesus' response, again, to make clear, he's speaking to him. As you skip down to verse 7 in that same chapter, he says, You... First he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then to make sure that Nicodemus knows, I'm not just talking about them. He says, you must be born again. Now the Greek there is interesting. We, we translate it as born again, as in born a second time. And that's the way that Nicodemus takes it. You can tell by the questions that he asks, but you could also translate that as being born from above. He says, you've been born in the flesh. You've been born through the sexual union of a mother and a father. You've been born from below, but you must be born from above. Unless there is a birth from above, unless life is given to you from above, you cannot see, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you need new life because you're dead. Jesus is telling Nicodemus in short, 
look, it is, it is swell. It is good. It is great that you have seen the supernatural work of God in and through me. It is awesome that you recognize that this is not the power of Satan, that this is the power of God. But it's not enough to appreciate this power. It's not enough to see and understand that this power has come from God. Unless this power works within you, you will always be dead. Don't look to my miracles. You must be a miracle. The same power by which you see me healing the sick and raising the dead and causing food to come to people who are hungry, that same power, it must be at work within you or you will never see the kingdom of God. You will never enter the kingdom of God. And two times Nicodemus responds. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Then again he asks, how can these things be? And this is beautiful. It's just beautiful. Jesus says to the man, unless you're born again, unless you're born from above, unless you're born of the Spirit, unless you go from spiritual death to spiritual life, you'll never understand. And Nicodemus looks at him and says, I don't understand. He's proving the very thing that Jesus is teaching. He says, I don't, I don't understand. How do I do this born again to myself? How do I cause myself to be born again? What steps do I take to be born again? Jesus says, thank you. You just illustrated my point. You're right, you can't. That's what I'm trying to drive home for you. Verse 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He says, look, you've been born once of the flesh, and that which of flesh will only ever be flesh. The flesh can't bring spirit. The flesh can't bring this kind of life that is necessary. That which is of flesh will only ever be flesh unless the spirit works. Unless the spirit of God comes, unless you're born from above, flesh is all that you will ever be. And flesh can't know God. Flesh can't please God. Flesh can't trust God. Flesh is at enmity with God. I say to you, religious man, I say to you, man who knows the Old Testament better than we ever will, I say to you, unless this thing happens, all you'll ever be is flesh. And then he looks at the man, verse 10, and he says, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? We act as though Jesus has come and taught some different gospel than that which was revealed in the Old Testament. Look, there's a greater revelation and a, and a, and a fuller revelation. And of, of course, we are incredibly blessed to stand on this side of the cross with this word in our hands and being able to look back in the spirit and see all that he has done. But he's saying, look, this has always been the case. When he talks about the need to be born of water and of spirit, people do all kinds of funky things with this. Talk about amniotic fluid and all kinds of stuff. That's not what he's talking about. He's directing, directing Nicodemus back to the promise of the new covenant. He's taking him back to Ezekiel 36. It's there that he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I want you to look at who's the actor here, friends. What role does the man play in this story? I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. You're going to be clean. I didn't ask you if you wanted to be clean. You're going to be clean. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. You didn't ask for a new heart, but you're getting it. I will give you a new heart. 
And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. He says, don't you know what the promise of the new covenant has been all along? Didn't you recognize why the people of Israel kept finding themselves completely frustrated and falling back into their own ways? God had not yet given them new hearts. The spirit had not come upon all of them. This is why he could say not all Israel is Israel. Because not all of them had received the promises of God. And this is the promise of God. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. What people have been needing. And he's saying to Nicodemus, those who have been born of the flesh, until you are born of the spirit, you will only ever be flesh. These hearts of stone, they they must be made tender and soft. You need a new heart. You're blind and you've got to be made to see. You're dead and you've got to be brought to life. You don't need new thoughts and new techniques and new friends and new religious patterns. You need new life. The kind of life that only comes from above. And unless that happens, you will always be walking dead men. Walking dead men that can do religious things. Walking dead men that can join churches. Walking dead men that can read their Bible. Walking dead men that can sign a card. Walking dead men that can repeat a prayer. Walking dead men that can undergo baptism. But unless you're born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And don't lose sight of what he's talking about here. He's talking about your eternity. Listen to me. If I came into you and I said, unless this happens, you die. Would you not perk up at this point? I say, unless this happens, you will die and you don't have the power to do this. Would that not cause you to cry out to God? If there's people you love that are going to die, and I say, unless God does what only he can do, they will die. Wouldn't that change the way you pray and evangelize? He says, this thing from above has got to happen. There will be no faith. There will be no repentance. There will be no kingdom unless God works. And only he can do it. That's why he says to Nicodemus, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. The wind has free will. The spirit of God has free will. He blows where he wishes. He loves who he loves. He has mercy on whom he will have mercy. You can't control the wind. You can't direct the wind. You can't command the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. Jesus talked, or excuse me, John talked in similar language at the beginning of his gospel. John 1, verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He says, if you believe, if you receive him, he gives you the right to become the children. How does this happen though? Because he came to his own. The kind of people that you would have expected to receive him and to believe him. The kind of people that had the promise of the new covenant. The kind of people that knew Ezekiel 36. The people that knew they needed a new heart. The people that knew they needed forgiveness. The people that knew about the sacrificial lamb of God. He came to those people and they didn't receive him. So what differentiates the ones who receive him from the ones who don't? What differentiates the ones who believe in him from the ones that don't? He tells us right here. They were born. Not of blood. Nor of the will of flesh nor the will of man, but of God. The free will of God is what directs who will come to life, who will receive, who will believe, who will be saved. 
It's a new birth, a monergistic work of God, a thing that only he can do. As Jesus would say in John 6, 36, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It's a sovereign and secret act. 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Practically, what does this look like? It looks like the opening up of a heart. What did I say? It's a change in disposition. It's a change in affections. It's a change in desires. It's a change in the mind and the will and the heart. This is exactly the way the, Old Te the New Testament shows us it happens. Acts 16, 14. One who heard us. This is the preaching of God. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what is said by Paul. God has to open the hearts. Just as all throughout the Old Testament, you would find these women who were barren. They, they desperately wanted a child or men who desperately wanted an heir. But God had shut their womb. Isn't that what the scripture says? But then at the appointed time, God opened their womb. There is no physical life unless the God of the universe opens your womb. There is no spiritual life unless the God of the universe opens your heart. That's what he's saying. You remember the text that we read earlier from 2 Corinthians 4, 4 about the, the God of this age blinding the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Well, what does he say does happen to those who believe? Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts. And given us the light and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Where you once saw darkness and a thing to be distrusted, God causes you to see glory for the first time. And you people have experienced it. Particularly those of you that grew up in the church, or, or maybe those of you that didn't. You had friends that were evangelizing you. You knew the gospel. Intellectually, you knew the gospel long before you saw the glory. Long before you sensed the hope. But there was a day in which it happened, a day in which your heart was opened, a day in which your eyes were opened, a day in which new life came, you heard, you trusted, and you were saved. That's what he's talking about here. It was at that moment he came to you and you were dead. And you could no more come to God than a dead man could walk his own way out of the grave. No one knows this more personally and more clearly than the Apostle Paul. He spoke about himself. People can get very uncomfortable with the, the, the way in which the Apostle Paul speaks about our depravity. And Chuck, I'm with you. It, it is always confounding to me when people hear hear about the depravity of man and the vileness of man and the wickedness of man, they go, oh, you're stretching it because I see myself in there. Nobody has to convince me that I was a piece of trash. Nobody has to convince me that I was dead. And Paul speaks in these terms about himself. When we first began our, our study of Ephesians and we were talking about who the Apostle Paul was, the, the interesting thing about Paul is as his letters move along chronologically, his, and as he gets 
closer to God and as he becomes more like Christ and as this process of sanctification plays its way out, as he becomes more holy, the way that he speaks about himself descends lower and lower and lower. Galatians 1.15, though, is this, he says, look, God had set me apart from my mother's womb. God had set me apart from the beginning. God had determined he was going to do this work in me, and yet there was nothing in my life that looked anything like God. Like when, when Paul shows up and says, look, here I am to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, nobody went, well, that makes perfect sense. That was the trajectory of his life. I, I relate to this. We're close enough to my hometown that some of you know people from North Shore. And, and they say, where do you go to church? I go to First Baptist Crosby. Who's your preacher? Josh. <laughs> Carrie Camp, you laugh because you were in this church. And they said, who, who we called it? Our new preacher. And they said, Josh. And what did you say? Ah. Paul says that he was a chief of the sinners, a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent opponent of the gospel. And at the moment of his conversion, what do we see? We see in chapter 8 of Acts, Acts 8.3, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then you go into this other story about some other stuff that happens, and we come back in chapter 9. Now we're going to talk about Paul's conversion, Saul's Conversion, And lest we think that something had changed in the interim, he says here in Acts 9.1, And Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, even when you were still dead. Nothing changed. Paul had taken no steps towards Christ other than to put him to death. Paul had taken no steps towards the church other than to destroy it. And what do we read in Acts 9.3? Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In that moment, everything changed. But beloved, I ask you to read the story and ask, is this some still small voice? Is this God like a little puppy dog scratching at your heart's door? Or is this the life-giving power of the creator of the universe breaking into darkness and causing life? Raising a dead man to life and changing everything. Everything. This life, there's going to be evidence of, of life. It's a transformative work. That's why... Jesus said to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes, but you hear the sound. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There'll be signs of life, like a newborn baby. How do I know that a baby is alive? I hear the cry. I hear the gasp of air and the scream from its lungs. There's going to be a response, and there was a response. Verse 20, and immediately Paul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. How could these people know that Saul had been born again? This is a hidden thing and a mysterious thing. Even the people that were there on the road, they couldn't make sense of what was happening. They didn't fully understand what was happening. So how can we know that this thing has happened? It's this. 1 John 5.1 says that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Again, talk about verses that people turn on their head. 
He doesn't say that everyone who is born of God has believed. He's saying, because you have been born again, you believe. How do I know you've been born again? You believe. How do I know you were born the first time? You're breathing and crying. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. How is a man saved? He confesses Jesus Christ is Lord. You can't do it in the flesh. You can only do it if you're born from above. The new spirit of life has been implanted within you. If your heart has been opened, if your eyes have been opened, and your mind has been changed, you're, you need new life. It's the only way you can confess in his Lord. That's exactly what he's done. You see Paul's life completely transformed as he follows after Christ. But none of that caused a new life. It was all in evidence flowing out of this. And that's, that's the thing that can make people very uncomfortable at this point. You see, the old, in the old traditional way of, of Southern Baptist churches, how, how can I know that I'm saved? How can, I, how can I know that I'm headed to heaven? How can I know that I've been born again? You'll sit in some dope's office and they'll say something like, well, did you, was there ever a time when you said this prayer? You go, yeah, 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 but I, I'm lacking assurance. Well, but that's maybe because you didn't mean it. We can settle it right now, say the prayer again, and really, really, really mean it. We're so used to having a thing we can point to that we did. Some card in the back of our Bible or some, some moment when we walked forward in a church. Is, that's the way I can know that I was born again. He says, no, it's the wind. You don't control the wind. You just see the effects and the consequences. But surely there's some of you sitting here today that you're saying, but how, how can I know? How can I know that I've been born again? How can I know that God has made me alive? How can I know that I've been born from above like this? If this is a hidden thing and a mysterious thing and a sovereign work of God, because the reality is that so many of us don't have a road to Damascus experience. I don't know when I was saved. I've, I've told you this before. I was baptized. My parents are, what, 13 or something? I wasn't saved. Sorry to break it to you. When did I preach my first sermon? I was about 23. I'm not even sure. I don't know. I have no clue. I said a bunch of prayers. I was baptized one time. I joined some church. I don't know. I don't know. And there's many other people that have these amazing experiences and these beautiful testimonies and everybody around them was just sure. This surely must be the moment when this child or this, this adult was born again and you look up and they're nowhere to be found. And so having some marvelous story of conversion is not evidence that you've been born again. And not having some marvelous story is not the evidence that you haven't been born again. There was a moment. You were dead, then you were alive. There was a punctilier moment. There was a point in time when you went from death to life, when God sent his spirit and he did this work. But because regeneration is a spiritual thing, because it's an unseen thing, we can't always point to it. And our understanding of it won't always be the same, any more than you can understand the moment of your first birth. But there's a man called John Stott. And, and he, he spoke about it in very, very similar terms. He, he talked about the lunacy of the way that so many do this thing by pointing back to a thing they did once that one time. 
He, he talked about how, how silly it would be if, if you, you pulled up on the scene of a wreck and there's a man laying in the ditch and you come running up to the man and his wife is standing over him and you can't tell if the man is dead or alive. And so you look to the man's wife and you go, oh my goodness, is he, is he dead? And she said, of course he's not dead. I have his birth certificate right here. So many have done. You check for signs of life. So I say to you this morning, the question of whether you've been born again, whether you've been regenerated, whether you've been brought from death to life, the question is, are you trusting in Christ today? That's the sign of life. Those who have been born again will trust in Christ Jesus. Those who have been born again will call out to Jesus Christ as Lord. Are you trusting in Christ today? Is there life in you today? Then you've been born again. You've been born from above. Look, we're going to talk next week about what it means to be raised up to a newness of life, what it means to be set free from slavery to sin. Look, there are other fruits. There are other evidences. There are other signs of life that God has granted us as assurances to us that we're His. But those are also confusing. They can all be faked. They can all be mimicked. They can all be mocked. The question before you today is this. Are you trusting in Christ? Well, how do I know that it's real faith? How do I know that my faith is sincere? How do I know that I'm not faking my faith? How do I know that I'm not just confessing Jesus Christ as Lord with my lips, but never with my heart? My question to you would be, what are you trusting in Jesus Christ for? Who do you call Jesus Christ and what do you believe he came to do? Do you look to him and know that if he doesn't work, if he hasn't acted, if he doesn't show up, that you have no hope for eternal life? then you're trusting. Then you're resting. Then you've placed all your eggs in his basket. You say, but my faith is, it's, it's, it's weak. It's, it, 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 it ebbs and it flows. And there's days when I, I don't feel like following him. And there's days that I don't feel like trusting him. And there's days when I would wander away and abandon the faith if I would. That's not the question. You have faith the size of a mustard seed. You have faith like a little spider web that's just clinging on to you and won't let go. Then you've been born again. And your salvation doesn't rest in the power of your faith or the strength of your faith or the robustness of your faith. It rests in the power of God. The same power by which He raised you from the dead is the power by which He will hold on to you until your last breath. So the question is, are you trusting in Christ today? There's a sign of this life in you today. If the answer is no, then there's only one proper response is to cry out to him and say, God, would you work? God, would you come? And then when he comes and he works and you trust in him, is to worship him all the days of your life. I had a thought this morning. It's not a part of my notes. I need to wrap up. I had a thought, though, this morning. I was thinking about the correlation between Spiritual resurrection, God bringing a man to life that he will cry out in repentant faith, faith and physical resurrection. And where do your mind go? It goes not only to the tomb, empty tomb of Jesus Christ, but it goes to a man called Lazarus. And we'll talk more next week about how the word of God, equipped by the spirit of God, is the way in which God calls men to life. As God called this man called Lazarus from the grave. But I was thinking not about his 
resurrection or his, his, um, his calling Lazarus to life, I was thinking about the party afterwards in John 12. You remember the scene there? There's a party and Lazarus is there. And you can just imagine how that conversation goes, right? Hey, Lazarus, what's new with you? I was stinky dead. But that's not what amazes me the most. Because you know that within the same context of that story that Mary was there and that she had taken the alabaster flask of pure nard, a pound of pure nard, and was anointing Jesus beforehand for his, for his own burial. And I, want, I wish that I could be a, a... I wish I could be in that room at that moment. And as, as Lazarus is over here and everybody's listening to his story, you were dead? Yeah, I mean, I was dead. I got the flu, I got the, I got the fever, I, I died. Four days I was dead. I don't know what it was like. Don't ask me where I went. I was just dead, okay? And then I heard a voice. It didn't make sense at first. I just I heard a voice. But then I knew that voice. It was the voice of Christ. And all of a sudden I could move. I don't know. I, I, I could move. And I moved and I was drawn to that voice and I couldn't go anywhere else. And everybody in the they're enthralled by this story. Do you realize there's a woman on the floor anointing his feet that has had the same power at work in her? Her story is no less miraculous than his. Do you understand? If a once dead man walked into this room, there'd be a line out this building of people wanting to see him. Come see the miracle man that Christ Jesus raised from the dead. Beloved, I say to you that you are no less a miracle. It took no less power to raise you from spiritual death than it did Lazarus from the grave. How must that drive our worship? How must that drive our praise? Father God, we praise you and we thank you. God, I... I know the devil works in two very particular ways at this moment. He seeks to assure those that are not yours that they're safe. He shushes them to sleep. Any, any prick that they feel in their conscience, any, any concern for spiritual things, he, sense, he seeks to, to damper and just to cause them to just go back about walking in the flesh. You're fine. You're, you're fine. You did that one thing that one time. Just quit thinking so much. But the other way in which he works on your saints is he tries to rob us of any assurance. He tries to get us all wrapped up in our own works, in our own fruit, in our own things that we have done, constantly looking to ourselves as evidence that we have been born again, when in reality what we need to be doing is looking to Christ Jesus. And the only question we answer is, do we trust him? And so I pray, Father, that you would bring a sense of abiding assurance for those who are yours. You'll help them to recognize the power of Christ Jesus, not only in saving them, but in making sure that no one will ever snatch them from his hands. And then from that place, Father, I pray that you would cause us to worship, to praise, to adore you for all that you have done. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.